A lot of people preferred the flintlocks, which were seen as more reliable because percussion caps were in short supply west of the Mississippi. And you have found Ballistic Chronicles. I'm your host, Gary Lewis. This is episode 30 of Ballistic Chronicles. This is where we talk rifles and hunting in the context of big game in the West. I'm happy to say I drew a muzzleloader antelope tag and a mule deer tag in eastern Oregon. So I'll be planning those hunts over the next couple of months. So happy you could join us here if you like Ballistic Chronicles and want to support the show. We're making it easy for you. If you like what you hear, if you like Ballistic Chronicles, you can sign up to support free speech and hunting and firearms content right here in the internet age. This is Ballistic Chronicles. We bring you stories about guns and hunting, about ammunition. We hold conversations here on the podcast. And if you like it, We invite you over to the other side, the premium side. As a premium supporter, you will get access to our whole back catalog. You get members-only big game calling episodes. We go deep into calling for big game, like calling for elk, like calling for bears, like calling for coyotes and black-tailed deer and mountain lions. And we're going to hold annual drawings for prizes too. And it starts at just $5 a month. Just go to garylewisoutdoors.supercast.tech or click through in the show notes. Picture this. It's early April, 1843, And the town of Independence, Missouri is just abuzz with an influx of middle-class families who've set their sights on Oregon. They've sold everything they have, and they put what's left in a wagon or a couple of wagons, and maybe they're bringing their livestock with them, and they're going to Oregon. The Great Migration across the plains really kicked off in 1843, and one of the major jumping-off points for the Oregon Trail was Independence Missouri. Now, if you were to go into any hardware store in Independence in 1843, you're going to see handguns behind the counter and a rack full of long guns. So there'll be smoothbore flintlocks from the late 1700s. There's going to be a Harper's Ferry rifle from 1803, a Hall rifle from 1819, both new and used Kentucky rifles with both flintlocks and percussion locks. Author G.W. Thistle, who crossed the plains in 1850, said one of the most common guns in the wagons going west was a Kentucky rifle with a long, heavy barrel. Another thing that we might mention is another common gun that was in those wagons was a blunderbuss, that short, bell-shaped shotgun that usually had a flintlock on it, too. That would have been a good coach gun that they would have had next to the seat or in case of needing to hunt birds or something along the trail. It was an easy gun to bring along. could be used by men, women, and children. 
A lot of people preferred the flintlocks, which were seen as more reliable because percussion caps were in short supply west of the Mississippi. In Independence, the prices were inflated, so a rifle was going to cost something like $12, and then a person would have to buy powder and shot and flints or percussion caps to fill out the possibles bag. A person's also going to want to have flour, hardtack, bacon, sugar, coffee, beans, dried fruit, salt, and pickles. And the reason they brought pickles was because it helped to fight off the scurvy. They weren't getting enough vitamin C coming across the plains. If you smoke, you want to stock a supply of stogies in your Conestoga. And that's where the word stogie came from is because a person would get on their wagon and they would put a cigar in their mouth and crack the whip over the oxen and smoke that cigar. So it became called a stogie. A man named Jesse Applegate was in that great migration of 1843. And the Applegate Trail would be named after him in the years to come. He tells a story. We're going to go back to that story and hear what he had to say about using a Kentucky rifle. Just picture this. Thousands of families are selling their farms and their homes and their businesses and they're putting their belongings in wagons and they're driving their livestock ahead of them. The train Applegate was in was divided into two groups. The light wagons would move quickly ahead, and they would find a place to camp for the night, and then the cow column would come up behind, and the cow column would bring up the rear with the livestock. So you could just picture the wagons. Most of the time, they weren't in single file, but spread out side by side because of the dust. It was easier to to run side by side. Applegate described this experience in his book, A Day with the Cow Column in 1843. 60 wagons, 50 families, 5,000 animals, and they slept in easily defended circled wagons, and then the sun begins to light the eastern sky. It is 4 o'clock a.m. The sentinels on duty have discharged their rifles. It's the signal that the hours of sleep are over. And every wagon and tent is pouring forth its night tenants and slow kindling smokes begin largely to rise and float away in the morning air. Ten or fifteen of the young men off duty on this day were tasked to a buffalo hunt. They rode away from the train and to the top of a nearby butte. Some dark moving objects have been discovered in the distance and all are closely watching them to discover what they are. For in the atmosphere of the plains a flock of crows marching miles away, or a band of buffaloes or Indians at ten times the distance look alike, and many ludicrous mistakes occur. But these are buffaloes, for two have struck their heads together, and are alternately pushing each other back. The hunters mount and away in pursuit, and I, a poor cow driver, must hurry back to my daily toil and take a scolding from my fellow herders for so long playing truant. It's a short book, but it's worth reading. It's called A Day with the Cow Column in 1843 by Jesse Applegate. And after I read it last year, I decided that this Kentucky rifle kit that I had gotten from muzzleloaders.com was going to be the canvas on which I was going to recreate a tribute to the story that I had just read. The Kentucky rifle developed out of the Pennsylvania rifle of the 1730s and, and 
Guns like these were used in the French and Indian War and by the colonists in the Revolution. And then when Americans begin to look west in the 1830s and the 1840s, the Kentucky rifle went with them. So this was the rifle of the long hunters. And it was also the rifle of the prairies and the wagon trains headed off to Oregon. So this particular kit, it comes with a full-length stock. It's a two-piece stock. Uh, It has a 33.5-inch octagon barrel and a flintlock ignition mechanism. Um, This particular kit comes from Traditions. It's 95% inleted, and it's going to require work with chisels and files and a lot of sandpaper. What I started out planning was that the rifle was going to take me 15 hours to build. Now, this was my third Kentucky rifle build. It had been quite a while since I'd done the other two, but this one actually took closer to 30 hours. And so as you plan the build, keep that in mind. It's going to take 15 to 30 hours probably. One of the knocks on this particular kit is that two-piece stock. And so some people argue that two-piece stocks are not original. And when you look at most of the Kentucky rifles, you would tend to agree with that. But look a little bit deeper and you'll find several examples from history of two-piece stocks being used by mountain men and pioneers. And keep in mind that when guns were repaired, and they would have had to have been repaired all the time because of the hard use that they went to, they would often end up with a two-piece stock just to put the gun back into service and back into the field. So this kit arrived with all the pieces I needed for the entire build, but I would need the finishing products as well. So I like the Birchwood Casey products. For the barrel, I used the Plum Brown and then the True Oil, and I used a rusty walnut stain. And so then, of course, you can need a lot of sandpaper. So you want anything from the real coarse sandpaper down to 600 fine, and then steel wool of varying grit as well. Other things you're going to need for a build are wood files of different sizes and shapes, and wood carving tools. You can use chisels and Dremel tools, and you'll you will need a vise. A cordless drill comes in really handy, and an 11/16 drill bit, and other things you might need. You might need wood putty, then latex gloves, highly recommended, and safety goggles, especially if you're doing that plum brown method. Okay, first thing to do after you get the package opened and you start pulling out all those little pieces is completely assemble the kit. And you don't ever want to shortcut this step or it costs you time later. And believe me, I've done it. You want to just put it all together and then keep a notepad handy and then write down each issue as it comes up. So if you see, oh, the trigger guard doesn't fit. So then you write that down. Trigger guard, we're going to need to remove some metal off of that trigger guard and then perhaps there's going to be too much wood on the stock you got to remove some of that wood from the stock perhaps and that's going to take perhaps a file and some coarse sandpaper and then and that fine sandpaper so write every little thing down on your list Um, this particular one unlike maybe the first two kits i'd done a long time ago required a lot of wood removal inside the barrel channel. And then on the outside of the stock, 
I really wanted to slim it down because for the the fit and finish for me is where the really personal satisfaction part comes in. And I want this gun to feel right in my hand. And so this is where I spent the most time on this particular project. As to the finishing of the barrel, I went on the internet forums and I read about what other people had to say about plum brown finish and how do you apply it. And they said that the barrel shouldn't be browned in stages, but instead you want to put the barrel in an oven and heat it up to 275 degrees. Well, I considered that and I didn't have an oven that I wanted to put this barrel in. And so what I did was I went ahead and browned it in stages. And to get it to the heat that's required, which is about 275 degrees with a torch, you can get part of a long barrel heated up to the right temperature, but you can't keep the whole barrel at that right temperature. There's just too much cooling going on every time you take the flame away. So I actually treated it in three stages of the from the breech up and then the middle section and then from the last third up to the muzzle. I did it in three different stages and then overlapped it a little bit and did three treatments that way so that I got a pretty even plum brown finish. If I was going to brown another one, I would probably do four treatments and then I would get a really rich finish. So some other things I had to do on this one is I had to trim up some metal off of the trigger guard and it's usually better to remove metal than to try to make the channel fit in when you're putting on those parts, the furniture, what I call it. The stock is made of beech wood and it's pretty good wood, but it's not walnut. So what I end up doing is trying to make it look like walnut by putting a walnut stain on it. I had to smooth out some imperfections in the buttstock and then clean up some rough spots around the lock, remove some wood from the barrel channel. And to do that, I had to use a file and a lot of sandpapering. To taper the stock like I wanted it, I had to remove a lot of wood there. And then around the forend tip required some work to clean that up and make the forend tip fit the way it was supposed to. And then on the barrel, I sanded all the text off the barrel. So I spent quite a bit of time removing everything that was on the barrel before I went ahead and did that plum brown treatment on it. At this point in the build, the thing you want to do is put everything together again, just completely assemble it, see if there's any other little things that need to be fixed. And then you go ahead and start uh, finishing the wood. And I always start with the ramrod and make sure I got the color right. And then I'll start on the rest of the gun. I like to use the about six coats of the true oil to get the kind of finish that I want on a gun that I'm going to take into the field. But you might do anything from one coat to seven or eight coats. When you get down to putting the last several coats of the true oil on, you want to do very light applications and let it completely dry and then some very fine steel wool 
in between. Don't put the heavy applications of true oil on that you did in your first and second coats. You're adding less oil to the finish every time you put it on. This is really a great build and I think a person can learn quite a bit about gunsmithing and about history by doing one of these Kentucky rifle builds. They teach you quite a bit as you go and I always learn something from one of these kits. Make it different and make it yours. Make it something that is different than what you might pick up off the rack and it'll be something you'll value and treasure the rest of your life. Look at the old pictures and imagine where this gun would have gone from a hardware store in Independence. Hey, it's your story. One of the cool things about these flintlocks that I didn't realize was that when you go to buy flints, you may, depending on who you buy the flints from, you may be ending up with a flint that was napped in the late 1700s. There's still big stocks of these flints around. And you think about the craftsman somewhere in a factory, maybe in France or England or Germany, was napping these flints. And there was such a huge stockpile of them that they're still selling them today. And maybe for most of a century, these flints were just sitting somewhere unused and without purpose and you can put that little piece of stone that some hands touched 200 years ago and put it back to work take it hunting today and that's really one of the cool links of modern muzzle loading with its past and, and with our hunting heritage. The kit I built came from Traditions and from Muzzleloaders.com. Right now they're selling that one on the website for $409. My next project is going to be the Deer Hunter kit. It's a modernized version of the classic rifle. So it's that 1840s technology, but it's got sling swivels and fiber optic sights. And that one is going on an antelope hunt in the desert this summer. Looking forward to that, people. Hey guys, I want to tell you about my new book. It's called Bob Nosler, Born Ballistic. It's a new hardcover book. It's beautiful. I love this. It's got gold stamping on the spine. It's got a dust jacket, full color dust jacket. And it's from Gary Lewis Outdoors. This book tells the story of Bob Nosler with an insight into growing up in the 50s and 60s. You know, I, I think, I really believe every boy needs a mentor and every boy needs a hero. And even when we're all grown up, we need heroes. And Bob Nosler, he grew up walking the trails, going hunting with John Nosler, his dad, the founder of the Partition Bullet. His dad was a self-taught bullet designer and machinist. And Bob inherited that same focus and he turned it on the business, Nosler Incorporated. And this is the story. Here from the desk of Bob Nosler, working in concert with Gary Lewis, that's me. It's the story of the life and adventures of Bob Nosler in a career that spans 50 years. And he's got a hunter's resume that includes stocking Cape Buffalo and elephant, as well as mule deer in the American West. This is a book about America. It's a book about the American way. I'm really excited about this one. You can get Bob Dosler, Born Ballistic, at GaryLewisOutdoors.com, Amazon.com, Nosler.com. Born Ballistic with Bob Nosler.
Hey guys, if you like what we're doing here on Ballistic Chronicles, you can support the show and get in-depth hunting content you won't get anywhere else. Just go to GaryLewisOutdoors.Supercast.Tech or click through in the show notes.